I'm Alex Wong, and the Wong Takes start now. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, October 24th, 2017. Hey, if it's the 24th and we post next Tuesday, that means we might have a Halloween episode. Ooh, themed episode? No, it's probably not going to be a themed episode. I don't know. Just a thought to put in the back of your mind. But thanks for listening to The Long Takes. Why don't we get started with the unfortunate Gordon Hayward injury that happened last week that we kind of started on, but we didn't really get a chance to fully talk about and know enough about. He dislocated and fractured his left tibia in his Celtics debut against the Cavs, and it was a really gruesome injury. Because we saw after the injury happened, there was compassion from fans and opposing players, including LeBron and his former teammate, or his would-be former teammate Isaiah Thomas, and that really demonstrates how bad this injury was, that you saw the brotherhood of the NBA really come together on this one. As far as the injury itself, there was a surgery on Wednesday. It was successful, but Gordon Hayward, due to the nature of the injury, is not likely to return this season. That's according to ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski. So, so far, this is going to be tough for the Celtics because they have gotten consistent scoring from Kyrie Irving and Al Horford. They're other two big stars out of this big three of sorts. But you're going to have to have someone to replace Hayward in your lineup as he's not going to be in for most of the season. So you're going to see more more focus on the young guys, especially down low. You're going to get you're going to see rookie Jason Tatum working with Horford, and they're going to want to spread the floor with him too, and he can kind of run the floor and be that kind of guy for them. Also, second-year player Jalen Brown, who had a good year last year, and now especially he's going to have a more prominent role as the other guard or the, as the other small forward to replace Hayward. He's going to need to improve his three-point shooting, though to match the kind of floor spreading that Hayward can give you that allows you to survive in this league, particularly to match it with the Cavs, he's going to need to improve his three-point shooting. He was at 34% last year, and he's at 31% so far this year, I believe. So not much of an improvement that we've seen. However, the Celtics also can choose to develop their own identity down low if they want to, and maybe try to punish teams like the Cavs or, I don't know, the Thunder, where they're not as deep inside, and there aren't that many good centers in the East. There aren't that many good centers in the league anymore, but there especially aren't any good centers in the East because in the West you've got, say, Jokic and Davis and Cousins and those type of players, but in the East uh, all you really have is Tristan Thompson. So you can be able to punish teams down low if you don't have Gordon Hay- even if you don't have Gordon Hayward. We'll have to see how that happens. And as far as the playoff standings go, without Gordon Hayward, it's going to be tough for the Cavs to get the one seed. I know they got the one seed last year, and I predicted they would get the one seed this year as well. But without him, they're a clear two seed. Because if without him, you don't have... Now, Hayward isn't a guard. But without Hayward, you don't have that second playmaker that can bring the ball up, that can get his own shot, that can hit shots reliably to compete with the elite backcourts of the NBA like Steph Curry and Klay Thompson, John Wall and Bradley Beal, James Harden and Chris Paul, or or even a guy like J.R. Smith. But once again, you'll notice that a lot of those elite backcourts are in the West, so you can really never count the Celtics out. That's why I'm only dropping them to the two-seed, because who's going to take their spot? Is it going to be the Wizards? Is it going to be the Raptors? Is it going to be the Bucks? I really like the Bucks, but I think they're... I keep saying this, but they're a year away. They've got Giannis Antetokounmpo, but... They're going to need another star to get them over the hump. 
So that's going to be a tough, that's a tough loss for the Boston Celtics. But hopefully they can recover and kind of get into the playoffs and get Hayward back. I really hope Hayward comes back. He's a real good guy in the league. So we'll see. Now, topic two. We're going to update the MLB postseason. It's been a good postseason. We're on to the World Series. We'll get to that in a minute. But first, let's recap the end of the other two series, the ALCS, Houston Astros and the New York Yankees. This was really, at the end of the series especially, a series of pitching. The Yankees won game 5-5-0 five, five, with Masahiro Tanaka going seven shutout innings. They look to have the series in control. But then here comes Houston. They score 11 combined runs in the last two games and only give up one. Their starters go a bunch of innings combined, 12 innings. Verlander goes seven shutout, and Jose Altuve has three RBIs in game six. And they pitch a combined three-hit shutout with Charlie Morton going five and Lance McCullers Jr. throwing four innings pitched out of the bullpen. And Altuve once again comes through. We saw Altuve. We saw a lot of their pitchers, that, especially Justin Verlander, who they required coming through. As far as the NLCS, the Dodgers and the Cubs, the Dodgers took game three, six to one. The Cubs took game four, three to two and survived. But then the Dodgers came back in Chicago and took game five, 11 to one, riding early offense to win the game and the series. Let's get on to a World Series preview. It will be the Houston Astros versus the Los Angeles Dodgers. And as I mentioned earlier, this is going to be a pitching duel. The Astros in their four ALCS wins gave, uh, gave up only three runs. And people have been talking about the bullpen and how they've been shaky in the playoffs. But it looks so good when it comes together, honestly, and the playoffs are so unpredictable. We really can't tell what bullpen we're going to get. Now, the fact that they clinched second after the Dodgers might lead to some trouble as far as fatigue goes. But they they played their last game, I believe, on Friday. So they've had enough time to recuperate and get their stuff back together before Game 1, which I believe is on right now. You should tune in on one of the networks. And back to the pitching duel, the Dodgers staff had a 1.6 ERA, combined ERA in the NLCS. Kenley Jansen has been lights out, and Clayton Kershaw's stone is midseason form, not his typical playoff choking form. So we'll see if that continues, but I, this Dodgers team is really good. Plus, their bats have shown up. Justin Turner this postseason has three homers and 12 RBIs, and Yasiel Puig is a 4.14 average and an OPS of 11.69, over 1,000. So that means he's not only hitting for average, but he's also hitting for power. And Yasiel Puig, he's that five-tool talent that we starting to mold into a, a little bit of a five-tool talent that he, we thought he would be coming into the league. And as far as the Astros, they're getting most of their production from Jose Altuve, who has a slash line of 405, 500, 730. So he's also getting on base, and he's got four homers in this postseason. We'll see those bats go at it again. I think the Dodgers have or the uh, the Dodgers have a deeper lineup, but the Astros once they when they're on their game, man, they can be really good. The Dodgers in this series will have home field advantage, which is significant because both teams have been undefeated at home during the postseason. The Dodgers with a smaller sample size of four and zero, which I guess is a good thing because you're winning more of your games on the road. Meanwhile, the Astros are 6-0, so even though they went to a Game 7 in that last series with the Yankees, all of the games in that series were run won by the home team. So we've seen, I don't know whether that be the crowd or just the familiarity, but something about home cooking is good for these teams. Worth noting, though, the Dodgers are only 4-0 at home. That means they haven't really faced adversity yet. Their only loss in this postseason was to a Cubs team that was down 3-0 in 
in Chicago in a tough environment. So when they go into Houston, will they have those same struggles? I don't really think they'll have too many struggles, but I don't know. It's the playoffs. And another note, the Dodgers also have more rest going into the series, and you might think that's a good thing, but the last team who won the pennant first to win the World Series date-wise was, I believe, the 2008 Phillies. So rest has been a disadvantage for whatever reason, probably rust because the shortness of the World Series and the playoffs in general just mean that rest oftentimes can hurt you more than it can help you. But this Dodgers team is so good. They were so good during the regular season. I don't know if they'll have those pitfalls. So Dodgers and Astros. I don't know if the series will be over by next week or if we'll be in a crucial 2-2 tie or whatever, but I'm excited to talk about it then. Let's get next to college football week eight. We're starting to heat up one more week until the reveal of the first official college football playoff committee rankings. So excited for that. Let's get to the scores. Number 10, Oklahoma State beat Texas 13-10 in overtime and a surprisingly low-scoring game. Number 5, Wisconsin beat Maryland 38-13. Number 1, Alabama keeps rolling over Tennessee 45-7. Number 8, Miami escapes Syracuse 27-19. Syracuse just upset Clemson. This is a good test for Miami. Number 9, Oklahoma barely beat Kansas State 42-35. A nice comeback for them. Number 4, TCU crushed Kansas on Fox instead of the MLB playoffs 43-0. And those are all the scores for you. Let's get to the marquee matchups. First, number two, Penn State destroyed number 19, Michigan, 42-13. to Now, this was a game, this was a whiteout game, so it was an intimidating environment in Beaver Stadium, 110,000 strong. That's actually a school record. But Penn State dominated Michigan in the second half of this game, 21-0. And that blew their already decent-sized lead, 21-13, to a gigantic lead, and they never looked back. Penn State had five rushing touchdowns in this game, two from Saquon Barkley and three from Trace McSorley. So we saw the dual threat of McSorley and also the Heisman candidate of Barkley, who's seen really no hits to his Heisman stock and looks to be the front runner right now. As far as the other te- the other front runners like Stanford's Bryce Love have lost games or not in strong as strong of a conference as Penn State. And Penn State, this was a great win for them. They complete their first leg of their rough schedule in in this season. And even though this was against a struggling Michigan team, it was still a Big Ten foe who only had one loss. However, Michigan had lost to Michigan State and barely escaped Indiana in overtime coming in. Now, as far as this win, this is their first, Penn State's first win against a ranked team. So this proved to some extent that Penn State is a legit number two seed. The teams that they had been beating earlier were teams like Akron where, or teams at the bottom of the Big Ten where you didn't really expect them to come in and put up a challenge against Penn State. But this resounding win for the Nittany Lions proves that they they deserve that number two spot. But they've got huge tests coming up next week. Next week, on the road at number six, Ohio State. I cannot wait for that game. They've got just a 25% chance to win, according to ESPN's Football Power Index. But I I don't know. I I like them going into Columbus. I think they have a strong enough team. They have a good backfield and a good quarterback. And Ohio State, even after that early loss to Oklahoma, has been looking good. So that's going to be a fun one to watch. That will definitely be on the docket for next week's college football update. And far in Michigan, they're going to drop out of playoff contention in this game. You're not going to win your division with two conference losses. 
And even if PSU loses two games and Michigan ties with Penn State for the best record in the Big Ten in their division, Penn State will own the tiebreaker because of this game. So Michigan's not going to win the division. Of course, their strength of schedule and just their brand recognition and their conference means that they'll probably get into a good bowl. But playoffs, now they're done. And I don't know how much longer we're going to have to be waiting for Michigan because after Jim Harbaugh came in, it's kind of like playoff or bust, but it's been a few years and he hasn't been able to cross that hurdle. The other big game on the docket this week that kind of went under the radar, number 13 Notre Dame beat number 11 USC 49-14. to So another, looked like it was going to be a good game, but it was really a blowout. And Notre Dame led this one 28-0 at half. So this game was kind of over from the jump. And during the game, they converted three USC turnovers into 21 points. So that's a crucial point of any game, any sport, points off turnovers. Notre Dame is kind of sneaking into playoff contention. They only have one loss, and that loss was to number three Georgia, who I believe was number 19 at the time. But they've proved to be a really good SEC team, and I don't know what their ranking will be. But right now it's number three, and that's looking like a really quality loss, if that's really a thing. As far as their schedule coming up, it's not horrible, but they've got some tests. NC State, who is ranked, Miami, who is ranked, and Stanford, who I believe is ranked on the edge of being ranked. And those are all Power 5 teams. And both of those teams, or all of those teams, have good running backs, and Miami is undefeated, and Stanford only has, I believe, two losses. One was a fluke to SDSU, probably. But Notre Dame defense has limited some potent offenses, and that could, be, could become a factor. They only gave up 20 points to Georgia and 14 points to USC. But the problem for Notre Dame is that they don't have a conference championship game because they're an independent school. They're not a part of a conference. And that could be a disadvantage for a one-loss contender. Because if you don't have that conference championship game, not only to prove yourself, but that's just another game to play. And that could add, because you're probably going to be playing a good team in the championship game, that's probably going to put another good team on your resume. So Notre Dame's independent status might hurt them there. But at the same time, they can kind of change around their schedule to play who they want. So it's really up to them. Now, USC, another team out of playoff contention, and possibly even their conference championship game with their two losses, their two, yeah, their two losses. They've got two one-loss conference opponents, so they're going to have to somehow leapfrog them if they want to do it. And those teams are Arizona and Arizona State. Now, USC quarterback Sam Darnold, this is also a big hit to his Heisman hopes. He has 16 turnovers this year, and he had three turnovers in this game. So when you give up those kind of turnovers, you don't let your team score. That's not really going to help your player the year hopes, especially with Saquon Barkley's consistent excellence and Penn State's consistent excellence. He's really the runaway favorite for the Heisman Trophy this year. So college football, just a few more weeks, and then we're going to have the who's in, who's out talk. It's going to be great. Now, this was a great week in the NFL as well. Let's get underway. I think we'll have a season update next week, or maybe the week after that, probably next week, but anyway, let's go. In the Thursday night game, a great Thursday night game, they've had some great ones. Niners and Rams this game, Raiders 31, Chiefs 30. I really like this slate, even though I think everyone is opposed to Thursday night football as a whole, just from a safety perspective, but the games actually haven't been that bad this year. Seven lead changes in this game was a crazy one. The Chiefs gave up a 30-21 fourth quarter lead, 
And to win the game, Derek Carr led the Raiders on a crazy 11-play, 85-yard drive. It was actually more than 11 plays because there were two timed down, untimed downs at the end of the game just from penalties. Whew. And the Raiders here have finally kind of found a winning formula after going or losing their last four games. They finally get to 3-4. and four. As it says, their first win since Week 2, Derek Carr had over 400 yards, total yards, three passing touchdowns, and no interceptions. Amari Cooper, who really hasn't put it, been putting up any production this year, had 200, more than 200 yards and two touchdowns. The Raiders, that, that's really good offensive groove that they find themselves in in this game. Even with Marshawn Lynch out, who was suspect, or ejected due to pushing a referee, which of course, you can't push a referee, Marshawn Lynch. But even on a short week, Raiders were able to kick it into gear, and they're back in the playoff hunt. So I think this Raiders offense will get more consistent throughout the year, especially as Marshawn Lynch really finds his groove, and Derek Carr gets back in sync with his receivers. I like this team going forward, especially beating a Kansas City Chiefs team that has now lost two straight after starting 5-0. and Late penalties hurt him, penalties hurt teams. And there were also no real breakout runs for Kareem Hunt, even though he had a good game. There weren't any of those electric plays that we're used to seeing from him, and they weren't able to convert in the clutch. The Chiefs also had 13 fewer first downs than the Raiders. Now, I know that their explosive offense limits their number of first downs a little bit, but we still talk about Alex Smith as kind of a game manager quarterback, one that's not going to make flashy throws 80 yards down the field like an Aaron Rodgers type, but he's going to win you games just by knowing the situation, knowing the score, and be able to get you those 10 yards and move the sticks. Second game, Patriots on Sunday Night Football beat the Falcons 23-7. The Patriots actually held the Falcons scoreless until 4.09 left in a game on a Matt Ryan pass to Julio Jones to break the seal. And the Falcons had opportunities in this game, but they couldn't convert. They had a blocked field goal, a missed field goal, and two turnover on downs, and one of those was inside the New England 10. I believe they ran a play from the New England 1. But if you can't convert, it sucks. The Falcons... They've been struggling. They've only scored 17 points, 17 points, 7 points in their last three games, and those were all losses, and they moved to 3-3 three and three now. And they're not having that same big play, that big play possibility as last year. Their longest play from scrimmage in this game was only a 22-yard reception, so they're not breaking the same holes, those receivers aren't getting open as much, they're not using the physicality of Julio Jones as much. They did suffer a little bit from fog in this game, although that was mostly in the latter part of the game, and that really shouldn't have prevented them from not scoring in the first three quarters. Meanwhile, the Patriots' defense is starting to kick in after really questioning them early in the year. The last three games for them, which have all been wins, they give up 14 points to the Bucks, 17 points to the Jets, and now 7 points to the defending NFC champion Falcons. Oh yeah, this was a Super Bowl rematch. But anyway... And they have more favorable matchups coming up with the Los Angeles Chargers, who were 0-5, I believe, to kick off the year, and the Denver Broncos, who have been running with Trevor Simeon this entire year. So I like the Patriots going forward. The Falcons, they're going to have a tough time, but I think just the sheer talent of that offense is going to be enough to get them out of this rut and into the playoffs, or at least on the bubble. But when we get to the season update, we'll talk a little more about that. And finally, on Monday Night Football, the Eagles beat the Redskins 34-24. to This was one that I think we circled on our calendars because it was an NFC Math East matchup between the top two teams in the division. The Eagles before this game at 5-1, and, and the Redskins, I believe, at 3-2. and two. 
Now the Redskins, their their downfall was really the end of the first half. They gave up two touchdowns in the last four minutes and weren't able to recover from it. I don't know if you guys know this, but the best team record-wise in the NFL are the Philadelphia Eagles. They have quietly gone 6-1. and one. Carson Wentz had another great performance with 269 yards and four touchdowns, and those were the four different receivers, so he spread the ball. And they've got the 49ers in Lincoln Financial Field in Philadelphia next. That should be an easy win for them, especially with the Niners at 0-7 looking so bad against the Cowboys this week, who have been a good team but sort of mediocre this year. The Redskins moved to three and three and are now three and a half games or two and a half games back in the division. The team struggle on the ground with only 18 attempts for 75 yards. Now that backfield of Rob Kelly and Chris Thompson, they're more of a passing backfield, especially Thompson. But still, you gotta get the gotta get those carries because the run game sets up the pass game. So even if you have the weapons like Vernon Davis, Josh Dawson, Chris Thompson, you're not gonna get them any passes unless the defense is, has to play the run. So you got to get them more carries. you got to get them more yards per carry. I don't think a 500 record will be enough to get the wild card, which is what the Redskins are at right now. So they're going to have to make some changes. I think they're going to have to maybe do something with their O-line or get something on the defensive end, like get someone on the other side to support Josh Norman. And they, too, have tough tests coming up against the Cowboys and the Seahawks, both of which have at least mediocre defenses. So we're going to see if the Redskins are legit or if the Eagles are just going to run away with this division, something we haven't really talked about much. Okay, now let's get two fan questions. We have a few this week. The first one is from Evan. Do you think Ezekiel Elliott should be able to appeal or fight back against the NFL despite literally beating a girl? Yes, it is true, probably, that he did beat a woman, but... He should be able to appeal because no case is truly black and white. In order to have a fair justice system, you need due process. You can't go based on assumptions. I mean, some people will think he didn't, some people will think he did, and you have to give both of those people a fair a fair decision. And this kind of trial that has been extended out, what we saw with the Flake Gate and now with Ezekiel Elliott Gate, you see these stuff. This happens all the time in society, but just because it's being played out for national consumption we're starting to see the trials or the, the, the flaws in the justice system. But nonetheless, it's a good system. It ensures that everyone gets a fair trial. And Ezekiel Elliott should be able to appeal as long as he can. Okay, we have another one. Oh, it's fantasy football advice. Let's go. What do you think of this trade? This is from Noah. I give up Jay Ajayi for T.Y. Hilton, Marvin Jones, and Amir Abdullah. Yeah, if you got fantasy questions, especially with the trade deadline coming up in a lot of leagues, send them in. Send them in. Fire away. Uh, depends. As for this this trade, it kind of it really depends on your depth. If you're strong at running back, it's fine because you're getting two wide receivers in return that are kind of wide receiver two, wide receiver threes, depending on their situation. T.Y. Hilton's obviously tougher without Andrew Luck, but. These are kind of boomer bust guys, so you're going to get production out of them some weeks, some not. And if you're if you're strong at running back and you can afford to give up a Jai, go ahead. I mean, it's good to have that depth. And Amir Abdullah, I think, could be a quiet running back three, a good flex guy. If not, if you're not strong at running back and you need a Jai, don't do it because you're not really getting any stars in this trade. T.Y. Hilton, we thought was going to be a star coming into this year, but Jacoby Brissett's just not going to get in the same yardage that Andrew Luck will. And J.H.I. is going to get you more consistent production at that 
star level. Finally, let's get to the quick take. Here we go. Eric Bledsoe trade rumors. The Suns' pursuit of a young, talented player is stalling a deal. Hmm, okay. Well, I don't follow the Suns much. They're kind of one of those young teams that were kind of waiting to burst out onto the scene, especially with guys like Devin Booker, who put up 70 points last year. But Eric Bledsoe tweeted something about he doesn't want to be here, and then the Suns organization responded with, okay, fine, we'll trade you. And it's kind of confusing. And the Suns are off to a 1-3 to three start this year. And they got blown out twice, so they're not looking good. Yeah, the Suns are doing the right thing, though, here. Eric Bledsoe is a good talent, but he's been in the league long enough to know that he's not that humongous star that you can develop. So if you want to get a young, talented player, it's going to be tough, though, because teams understand that this is the future of the league. It's not an old man's league. This is a young man's league. So you're going to have to try to... Give up one of your star players. I don't know who you're going to give up because they don't really have many brand names. Maybe it's a package. Maybe it's some other form of compensation. Maybe it's other draft picks. But the Suns, yeah, they're looking at the right direction for this to get a young, talented player out of a veteran, but a 27-year-old veteran who can still put up good numbers in Eric Bledsoe. Thank you for listening to The Wong Takes. We will be back next week. Uh, check out the email, thewongtakes.gmail.com. You can send questions. You can also send questions via the website, thewongtakes.wixsite.com slash thewongtakes. You can also check out the Patreon to get exclusive perks, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash thewongtakes. You could get your name shouted out. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next week.